AWS security issues show up in tech news fairly often, and today we talk with someone who wrote about AWS services other than S3 that were found exposed to the public. Could that be some of your services? Well, could be. The numbers are pretty impressive, so stay tuned and find out how to determine whether or not your EBS snapshots, RDS snapshots, AMIs, or Elasticsearch clusters are accidentally public. Packetpushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcast directory. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is co-host Chris Wall at Chris Wall, whose public cloud security posture is only outshined by his excellent grooming and all-around swellness as a fantastic human being. Whoa. Yeah, I'd wait, set, wait, we I'd gotta, a we gotta address man. the elephant in the room, though, man. It's not an, it's an Ami. It's not an Amy. Oh, it's either Ami or AMI. GIF, you know, jeez. No, no. I, I refer to it as AMI. Yeah, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna pronounce it as a word, it's an Ami. So, <laughs> well, our guest today who one. says AMI, and that would be Scott Piper. Scott Piper is a AWS security consultant, and so on. Scott, would you, uh, in a sentence or two, just introduce yourself to the audience? Uh, yeah, so I do uh, independent AWS security consulting for my own business, Summit Route. And what I do is I help companies, you know, assess their current environments or set up detections and uh, their logging. So just kind of all around, just whatever they need help with, with security. Very good. Now, I said in the intro that we weren't going to spend a lot of time talking about S3 because that is maybe the most well-known thing. And, and the article that, that that is how I found you wasn't really about S3, it was about some other things. But it's a good place to start, though. I mean, there's been a lot of publicity about S3 buckets being exposed. So just a level set for us here. How is it that we have all these S3 bucket problems? How are they made public? And when they are made public, what is the risk? Yeah, so I mean, I guess, first of all, just to explain what the S3 buckets are, is they're, they're basically just a folder for any types of files or data that you want to keep. And it's run by Amazon and their AWS service. And so this was started back in 2006 was when S3 actually got released by them. So it's been around for a while. A ton of people have used it. And because it's a storage service, it provides a lot of functionality. And sometimes people misconfigure this. And so some of the functionality is to be able to publicly host your files as a website. So that's one use case kind of for, for why these things would be made public. And, and there's some other reasons as well why people would want to do this. Um, but sometimes I don't, I don't think people really understand the implications of that. So the risk is really just that people are accidentally exposing files that they don't want to have exposed. And so um, some of the first examples, there's a guy named Chris Vickery, who's been pretty prolific in finding a lot of these. And uh, his first one was actually back in September in 2015. He found an, an S3 bucket that was just named SysProd. That was the name of it, you know, so pretty easy to find. And that contained health records of 105 million people. And so since then, it's just been more and more of these are found. There's now basically every week a new one gets found. There's a uh, that's uh, called Last Week in AWS. It actually has an S3 bucket negligence award where they just highlight who the most recent person to accidentally expose an S3 bucket is just because it is such a common problem. Yes, Corey yeah. Quinn's a newsletter. We uh, we had him on the show at one point, yeah. I'm just imagining people with like a cowboy outfit and a pair of six shooters like yippee-ki-yay out there finding all this data that's exposed. It, it sounds like it's relatively easy. I, I don't know, but 
In your opinion, Scott, have we found all the S3 buckets? Are there more being exposed or is this problem kind of going away and it's just yeah. the buckets? So, so I've, I've talked with a couple of people about this, people that like actively have tried hunting for them. I think to some degree, a lot of them have been found already. However, they haven't always been disclosed because there, there's not a way of contacting the company behind it. The only way that you can find out whose S3 bucket this is, uh, you know, say you find credit card numbers in there or, you know, you find public health records or something like that. The only way that you can figure out who it is is either something in the data, you know, identifies who the actual owner is, or you can contact AWS and say, hey, I found this S3 bucket. Looks like this shouldn't be made public. You should really contact the owner of this and, and let them know about this. So that's, you know, how you'd actually go about contacting these people. But, but again, like the way in which these are found is by usually scanning for them, brute forcing for them in some way. And so as an example, that first one that was found called SysProd, basically you just take, you know, some common terms that people might be using for, you know, what, what they would call their backup or data storage folders. And so you might have things like files, backups, you know, and then you start concatenating those with the names of companies. So maybe Apple, you want to look for them. And so you'd look for Apple files, Apple backups, things like that, you know, and, and try around with uh, different combinations. And then you start doing like their project names or, you know, so you might be iPhone backups or Mac OS backups or something like that. And so you, you continue down that line of just, you know, trying all these different combinations. And so the assumption is that, that a lot of the ones that exist out there probably have been found, but it's just that don't contain anything that's of interest in them or, you know, the, the people that have found it just, you know, it, it takes a long time in some of these cases to try and dig through and figure out, is this actually bad? You know, cause it might be, there might have a whole subfolder directory. And so it's going to take a long time to download all those files, look through all the data. It, it just becomes problematic from that standpoint to try and find them. Also, there, there has been issues, for example, the tool CyberDuck up until about a year ago, actually, when you created a new S3 bucket with that tool, it would actually make it public when you created it. And that's since been fixed. And so some of these kind of issues that were exposing them have, have hopefully been fixed. Um, so I think it's really going to slow down how many S3 buckets out there are being exposed. All right. So we kind of get the whole S3 thing. What happens when they're accidentally made public and then how new S3 buckets are being discovered, what the process is and how they're being discovered. But let's move on from S3 because that's that's old news what really captured my attention in this article that you published, Scott, was all these other resources that are being accidentally or sometimes on purpose exposed in uh, in the Amazon cloud. Can you talk through what those services are and, and give us some numbers to kind of share the impact of just how many of these services are out there? Yeah, so Amazon has a number of other services that allow you to store files in different ways or, or store data in some ways. And so one of these examples would be um, EBS volumes or EBS snapshots. And so this is basically when you have a uh, virtual machine on Amazon, it's called an EC2 instance. And then the hard drive that that uses is commonly going to be an EBS volume. And so you can take a snapshot of that hard drive. There's been over 100,000 of those snapshots are public. In Amazon, for uh, for three different services, which I'll discuss here, they actually provide commands that you can run that that allow you to identify you know all the different 
public resources of this service that exist. And so, so things like S3 buckets, you have to brute force, whereas with these commands, you can actually just run a command and it'll just tell you all the ones that exist within that region. So you iterate through all the regions and you can find all the different resources that exist for that service. For the EBS snapshots, there's over 100,000. For RDS snapshots, which is their database service, there's almost 400 of them. And then for AMIs or AMIs, <laughs> there's over 700,000 of those. And so, so those are the three services. Again, like there's legitimate reasons to do this. And so as an example for the AMIs, they have made a number of these AMIs public. And again, for the EBS volumes, they, they've made a number of them public. There's reasons for doing this, like legitimate purposes for it. But in some cases, you know, again, there, there's there's kind of like this long tail where there's some accounts that are responsible for a lot of these being made public. And then there's this long tail where it's like an account that only has one of these things public. And in those cases, that's probably where they accidentally made it public on accident. Now, you mentioned a a command that you could run or a series of commands that could be run that would expose all of these. Now, is that just... If you are in your Amazon account or maybe you're in the context of your VPC and you run this command, are you just getting back your resources that have been exposed publicly or are you getting back everything in a region or an availability zone? Yeah, so you get back all of them. So so there's different um, parameters that you can add to these different commands. So if you run AWS EC2 describe snapshots, that will give you all of the public snapshots that, that exist within that region from any account. And so, so that's how you can identify those. But then if you only want the ones for your own account, then you give it an argument of owner ID self. And so then it, it restricts it to only the ones that, that you have. Um, and then you can also specify uh, restorable by user IDs all, and that'll tell you which of the ones you have that have been made public. Which sounds different from the S3 process where you have to kind of do some guessing and maybe some intelligent brute forcing, if that's even a thing, to figure out what the resource name is you're trying to get to. With these others, EBS, RDS, AMIs, if you have the command, you just run it and get back everything that's public. Exactly. Yeah, it's much easier with these different services. And so, so that's three of the services. Um, and so they're, they're kind of, you know, special in how they, how they allow that and that they have an actual command that you can use to be able to find all the different public resources that exist. But then there's, you know, a number of other services on Amazon that you can also make public similar to S3 buckets that are more difficult to find. There aren't commands in order to find them. Amazon has what's called resource policies that can be attached to some of the services. And they have a web page that describes, you know, what, what are the different services that you can attach these resource policies to. So S3 is one of them. Amazon Glacier, which is more for long-term style storage of folders, that's going to be another one. And uh, in the case of these other different services, though, they're more difficult to find because you have to, in some cases, know both the account ID and you have to know what the name was that the person chose for them. So if we go back to an example, you know, for, for S3, it's a global namespace. If you were to choose the name, uh, you know, my files as the name of your S3 bucket, I couldn't choose that. I would have to use, you know, Scott's files or something like that for the name of my S3 bucket. Whereas with Glacier, we could each choose the name my files, but then you would have a 12 digit account ID with yours and I would have a different 12 digit account ID with mine. And so an attacker would have to both 
guess that name, my files, and they would have to guess that 12-digit account ID. So it becomes much more difficult to try and uh, search for some of these others. However, with things like Glacier, Amazon has actually, in their documentation on how to use this service, they mention repeatedly how to actually make Glacier vaults public. Like, it is, it is in there often, you know, so there are probably a great number of these Glacier vaults that are public, but because it's more difficult for attackers to find, you haven't heard about this problem because it's going to be a lot harder for an attacker to find that than it is for the S3 buckets. Well, then what is kind of Amazon's response to these findings? Because it can't look good to have all these vulnerabilities, but at the same time, it's not really their fault. Yeah, so so there's there's a number of different services that, that have these similar problems. As an example, recently this past week, I think it was, people identified that a number of companies have Google groups that are exposed publicly that are in, in you know, that should be private because it includes, you know, different things like, you know, issues customers are having, you know, emails, things like that. Um, you know, Trello had an issue recently and perhaps still does. And so, so it's just a common problem against any type of service in which you can make things public. People are going to make those public. And so it really comes down to what is the company's response going to be? You know, my my view is AWS, um, and they have in the past, they have actually reached out to people that made S3 buckets public, and they sent emails to them saying, hey, here are all the different S3 buckets that you made public, just FYI, just so you know. And they've also you know, made it um, in their user interface, they've made it stand out a lot more. What are the different S3 buckets that you have that have been made public? So, so it becomes a you know kind of an interface problem uh, for the company. But then it, it also, you know, you also want to have that and things like that to be able to assist customers when they when they receive an email like this, you know, saying that it was made public, you know, the customer is going to reach out and be like, oh, is this a problem? What does this mean? You know, maybe I meant to make it public. Why are you telling me about this? So it's kind of a hard problem for the companies to, to really determine when they should be reaching out to their customers, you know, and, and how much they should try and do to restrict customers from doing this. In, in my opinion, Amazon should probably have greater guardrails in place. There's not really a way to create a bucket and be able to modify policies related to that bucket without actually restricting them from making that bucket public. So having some type of guardrails in place uh, would be better. Protect your buckets, dog. I mean, Data Not Show 86 was laser focused on AWS Identity and Access Management Policies, or IAM, for AWS objects, and that included S3. So in that show, we shined a light on how difficult it is to completely put your arms around, you know, kind of the best ways to protect your assets, if not just any way. And with the knowledge that folks are out there kind of hunting, if you will, for public buckets, I suppose security has finally transitioned from a, that's hard, we'll do it later, to a task that's let's secure on the front end of this project mindset. Hopefully, I don't know, that's my thoughts, Ethan. What about you? I like the notion of guardrails. Now, uh, Scott was somewhat critical of AWS saying, yeah, they don't really provide guardrails. So you don't know exactly what your security posture maybe should be. And if AWS provided some guardrails for that, it'd be a little easier. Well, fine. If AWS isn't going to provide the guardrails for you, then you can as a function of process as a part of your operations as you provision your cloud infrastructure. Have your own guardrails up there in some form some best practices, if nothing else, to make sure that your security posture is what you, what you mean for it to be. So there's a lot of data and buckets and gosh knows what else there out on the internet that's exposed 
Let's talk about, I guess, fixing that. I assume that's going to be the next step. So I have an AWS account. Perhaps I'm just concerned or I know that something's fishy on there. How can I kind of see or put my arms around what's being exposed publicly within my AWS account? Yeah, so um, in the original article uh, that's published on Do a Security blog um, called Beyond S3, that actually identifies what are the commands, specific commands that you can run to look for some of these things, the EBS snapshots, the RDS snapshots, and the AMIs. But really, like you're not going to want to have to run these one-off commands for all the different services that exist out there. It's a lot better to you know be able to use a single tool that can look through for all these different things. Uh, Netflix has a, an open source tool called Security Monkey, which is really good at being able to find all these different resources. And, and so that's kind of the one that I recommend for a lot of people. And, and there's similar ones. There's different vendors um, and commercial solutions. Um, and there's some other open source tools as well that exist out there. But I think Netflix, their security monkey tool has greatest number of different things that it's able to check for. Yeah. They definitely have a monkey theme going on between chaos monkey. I guess everything is fill in the blank monkey, you know, noun or verb monkey. They call it their simian army, actually. So yeah, it's, oh, cool. it's a whole bunch of different monkeys for things. Yep. That is terrifying. All right. <laughs> Scott, is there a now, you, you listed off a whole bunch of tools there, and that, that's fine if you're going to run them uh, manually, I guess, to know what those tools are. But maybe can I leverage those tools in, in an automated way, or is there maybe some other scheme that we could use to automate these security checks and then raise an alarm if some resource becomes public that hadn't been previously? Yes. Again, you could use Netflix's Security Monkey, and what that tool does is it periodically scans through your account. So it's configurable, but I think I think the default is maybe every hour or something like that. It's going to actually try and scan through and perform all these different checks. There are other tools, though. For example, Airbnb has an open source tool called StreamAlert. And what that'll do is it actually looks at your logs as AWS is recording the different API actions that happen in your account. And from that, it's able to generate alerts to be able to tell you about these issues. And these different tools, you can tie them into things like Slack. So it'll, you know, just post a message into your chat room there, or you can tie it into your different ticketing systems, for example, uh, you know, Jira or or any other tool like that to be able to, you know, create tickets for people to respond to and and handle there. Scott, can you dive a little bit deeper into that whole security monkey thing? You know, what what is it all about? What does it kind of do beyond just the, the high level? Hey, it checks your security for you. Yeah, so Security Monkey is a, I would say, like monolithic architecture in the sense that it's all in one. It's doing everything. So normally what people do is they'll run it out of an EC2 instance, and it's going to scan through all of your different accounts. And so you can tie it into multiple AWS accounts, and it will collect all this data and put it into a database, which can be hosted as an RDS instance. So by doing it in this way, it can, uh, you know, it can scale Netflix has, I don't know if they've, you know, mentioned how many accounts they have, but I assume it's at least dozens, if not, you know, hundreds of AWS accounts. So chances are it's going to scale to whatever size your own company is dealing with. Collected all of this data, then it's going to run all these different auditors across all that data that's collected. And so it's going to try and score these in different ways to identify which are the highest priority issues that you should be looking at. And so it's not only going to look at, you know, what things have been made public. It'll look for users that haven't logged in in over 90 days. It'll look for whether or not you have certain security features turned on or not, like VPC flow logs. It's going to, you know, just basically make all of these different checks and, and primarily security focus 
focused, but I assume it might have some others as well in there. They're just kind of like, you know, general hygiene as well. Cause a lot of times, you know, that general hygiene also plays into, uh, you know, improving your security. So once it makes those checks, it then has a web interface that you can log into. And so you can tie this into your SSO provider in order to do that authentication. So, you know, users don't have to handle their own passwords or anything. Or, you know, if you don't have an SSO provider, you can set up users like that. And then it has this whole web interface that essentially looks like a Jira ticketing system where it'll just show you all the different alerts that have happened and allows you to fill in comments on those and allows you to close those out or, you know, justify why those bucket is public, for example, or any other issues. It sounds more mature. It sounds like uh, it's it's pretty usable the way you describe it as opposed to, yeah, it's a thing they gave you. And if you can make sense of it, hey, good luck. It's useful. But it sounds yeah. like it's actually fairly useful just the way it is. I mean, it's it's been around for a number of years. A number of companies are using it. So it's it's definitely a, a mature product at this point that, you know, a, a number of companies outside of Netflix are using and using it as, you know, kind of their day-to-day processes. It's not like, you know, a one-time script that someone comes in, you know, annually or quarterly and runs. Like this is a continuous thing that is happening in your environments. So when it comes down to humans that are configuring AWS, where are the default security issues? What are the things that tend to, to crop up often? I mean, it, there's a lot of ways we can go with this, but uh, maybe we'll just start with your observation, Scott. Yeah. So whenever I come in for an assessment, I'm I pretty much am expecting at least one S3 bucket to be exposed somewhere. And oftentimes it's not bad, really. You know, it's it'll be some test files or something in a developer account. You know, and so it's you know just all it says is like hello world or something like that because they were testing some other tool something like that. But still, you know, like you'll you'll probably see some of those. You'll see um, users that don't have multi-factor authentication associated with their IAM users, and so so it's kind of I think that we're right now at a point where a lot of kind of the best practices haven't totally been established for how to both secure your accounts and use them effectively. Because a lot of times, you know, you'll you'll get some advice on how to secure these accounts and lock them down, but it's not really the best advice. For example, associated with your users when they log in, that's probably not actually the best advice because you don't want to have IEM users in the first place. It would be better to tie your AWS accounts in with an SSO provider that is then keeping track of the you know lifespans of your different employees. Because if you have all these different AWS accounts and you have IM users for that same person in every single AWS account, then if that person ever leaves the company or you know maybe their laptop gets compromised or something and you want to roll their passwords, you have to make sure that you're rolling their passwords across every single AWS account that that person has at your company. Whereas if you just tie it into an SSO provider, then it's that's going to handle it for you. So that's, I think, where we're at right now is trying to understand what are the functionality that AWS provides for you, but then what are the things that other services out there are providing for you and how can you tie those in so that your AWS environment isn't just this locked down, you know, restricted beast that, you know, only a few people at the company are allowed to touch. You know, you want to have something that that is usable for your company so your company can do what it does, makes money and, you know, makes products or whatever it happens to be. Well, it also sounds like you're making a point. Don't rebuild your user and security infrastructure back out in IAM if you don't have to. If you can have a user tied to one identity, that SSO idea, that's better for managing the life cycle of that user. How about tying this to kind of external scanning services? Because I know originally we're talking about standing up AWS services and, and putting code in there. And you know it's kind of eating your own dog food or drinking your own champagne. But can you have something kind of just watchdogging externally and, and just kind of pay a subscription or something like that to, to yeah, monitor without so, having to run it yourself? 
Yep. So there's definitely um, a number of vendors out there, commercial vendors. I, I don't want to, you know, mention who all the different ones are out there because I don't have any preferences, you know, for, for myself, I'm, you know, technology agnostic, but there are a number of vendors. And basically what you'll do is you'll set up a uh, crossed account trust role of some sort, which basically means that you are providing them with some limited access to your account. And so this is going to be, you know, the ability to read the metadata associated with your account. So they'll be able to see an S3 bucket exists and they'll be able to see the policies associated with that S3 bucket, but they won't actually be able to see the data that's inside that S3 bucket. And they won't actually be able to modify those S3 buckets in any way. Depending on the vendor, they might have additional capabilities like to be able to do automation. So if someone makes an S3 bucket public, you could automatically flip that and make it private again. But for the most part, these different vendors work in that way. So there, there are a lot of vendors out there. You know, There's probably at least a dozen at this point that do different types of things to try and help monitor and secure your AWS environments. Security Monkey, that was cool. I'm glad we got to understand a little bit more about what Netflix's Security Monkey tool was all about. And I like the fact that it's got some maturity to it. I haven't had a chance to try it yet and haven't had that use case, but... I love that if I do choose to use Security Monkey, it's not one of these open source tools. It's like, here, we made this thing. And if you're super specialized and dig deep in the code, maybe you can figure out how to apply it to your environment. Rather, it's a tool that's been around for a long time that I can make immediately applicable and get some benefit out of. Chris, what's your thoughts? Well, you don't like open source dumpster fires? I get you. I'm with you there. (laughs) So my thought was around a little bit of an irony in using AWS services to host a service such as Security Monkey to test the vulnerabilities present in your AWS services. Definitely inception at the very finest level, my good friends. Well, let's move this conversation ahead to into improving the future. And Scott, you've done a lot of open source contributions here, different tools that people can use to help secure their public cloud environments and make things, just make the world a better place. So there's several of them I want to talk through here. And I want to start with uh, flaws.cloud. Well, F-L-A-W-S, I see what you did there, flaws.cloud. But can you uh, tell us about that? What is that service? What does it do? Yeah. So, so prior to doing consulting, I was actually running security for a company. So I developed flaws.cloud basically to train my own, um, you know, employees on the issues that I was worried about in our AWS environment. And I realized that in making this, it really wasn't any additional cost for me to make this a public service that anybody could play versus just my own employees. And so there's a number of like CTFs out there that teach people about SQL injection and cross-site scripting and you know, um, the CTFs that'll do buffer overflows and processes and things like that. But there wasn't anything that was AWS specific. And so that's what flaws.cloud is. And so it starts off, the, the first couple of levels are going to be about S3 buckets that are exposed. There's um, a level that's related to an EBS volume. And, and there's, you know, a, a couple other different levels in there that, that show you different common issues in AWS. And the way that I developed this was I actually looked at um, on HackerOne, all the different bug bounties that have been rewarded to researchers for AWS issues at companies and basically, you know, categorize where all those different ones were and then created levels based off of those different issues. And for these different levels, what I want to do is I, I knew that 
you know, some of my employees and, you know, other people out there, some people actually want to be hands-on keyboard, try these things out, see how it actually, you know, how is this really done in the real world? You know, so you can actually play these levels, you know, by using the CLI and, you know, actually running commands against my AWS environment. But then, you know, some people, they don't have time for that. And they just want to read, like, what are the different issues? And so you can click through all these different hints. And so I think each level has about three hints. And by the time you get to the last hint, it really just gives you a link to the next level. And so that allows you to, you know, look through what the issue is, see kind of how it's discovered and see the hints and the steps that someone would take to do that. And then by the time you get to the next level, I show like, here's examples from HackerOne of where these problems actually existed in the real world. Here's how to avoid the problem. And then it just tells you, you know, what the next level is for you to go to. Now you say level. So is this like a gamified method of training or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically, when you visit flaws.cloud, you'll look at that and ultimately you'll be able to see that it is hosted as an S3 bucket and that it has a hidden file within that S3 bucket that then takes you to the next level, which is a different URL. And so you progress by basically finding the new subdomains of flaws.cloud that each level is on. Okay. And so see, this is this is interesting because you're training a few different things here. One is you're training a way of thinking, you know, you need to think like a hacker would think and begin to discover and expose services using that methodology. Then it's also awareness. Now you're like, these are holes. These are potential problems and ways that uh, data can be exposed in an AWS environment. So you're teaching what the problems are and then how to go after them. So the person that gets through the whole flaws.cloud scenarios should be much more aware of not only what the issues are, but then how to defend against them. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what I realized along with that, you know, was I didn't mean for it to be like this, but it it was really teaching or it was primarily helping people that were, uh, you know, bug bounty researchers and and they serve, you know, an important role in being able to define these issues. But my hope was because especially at the time, you know, I wanted my own employees to be able to find these issues. And so the awareness helped with it, but it wasn't actually, you know, really helping them identify within our own AWS accounts, you know, what these issues were or, you know, be able to respond or detect incidents there. And so my plan is to basically release a flaws.cloud version two of some sort. I'm not sure what I'll call it or how it's going to exist, but with a focus more on blue teams and being able to audit accounts and respond to incidents and hopefully do that in some type of gamified way that, you know, again, like flaws build people's attention. Like flaws was actually extremely popular. I did not expect it. I, I figured, you know, okay, just a couple of my employees and then maybe some of my friends, you know, will check it out. And in the first few months, like over 30,000 people had actually played it. So it's been like a massive success. But again, like I want to be able to teach different, you know, blue teams how to be able to do these problems. Like, you know, right now I do consulting and part of my consulting business is doing, you know, assessments of people's accounts. I don't want to, you know, find these same issues over and over again. Like these should be solved problems. And so that's what I'm hoping to do is be able to teach people how to avoid these issues. Now, Flaws has AWS in the name. So these are, I'm assuming, AWS specific issues. Can what I learn in Flaws be applied to other public cloud environments like Azure or GCP? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it is specific to AWS and the other, you know, Azure and Google's cloud environment, they're each very similar. They they each have the same problems in slightly different ways. So as an example, one of the levels of flaws.cloud is hitting the kind of magic IP address 
for AWS's metadata service called uh, 169.254, 169.254. This is like a special IP address. And if you can hit that IP address, you can get special information about an EC2 instance um, and potentially be able to get the privileges associated with that EC2 instance. And so Google's cloud and Azure also have that same IP address um, or it's somewhere within like a similar CIDR range. And and so it's the same type of thing. Uh, They've added some additional protections on theirs where they require a special host header. So it's, it's somewhat more secure than Amazon's, but it's still the exact same problems. All right, so I obviously need to play around with flaws, but I wanted to bring up another tool that you had called Cloud Mapper. And what is that? I mean, where do you find? Hey, where do you find the time to build all these things? First off, but <laughs> tell us about Cloud Mapper as well, because that thing seems so, really groovy. Yeah, so I, I got actually really lucky with how this came about. I was working with Duo Security on some things. And ended up, you know, my contract was coming to an end and we were kind of talking about like, hey, what are, you know, what are your next steps and stuff? And I told them, hey, actually, like, I realized there's some tools that need to exist out there. Like, I just want to build them. It's going to make my job easier. It's going to make, you know, hopefully it'll make the world a better place in some way. So I plan on, you know, building this tool that's going to help people visualize their AWS accounts. So be able to see, you know, what are the different EC2 instances and RDSs, ELBs, all the different network resources, and based on their security groups, which things can talk to one another. And so a lot of people have in their head which ones, you know, should talk to each other or which ones do talk to each other. But, you know, from a security perspective, you want to look at which ones can talk to each other, which ones are publicly exposed. And so, you know, told them like, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And they're like, awesome, we want that to exist also. Why don't you work with us and, you know, we'll build it together. And so had, you know, was able to build Cloud Mapper uh, with Duo Security to basically, you know, just data about an account and then be able to show this graphical diagram that's interactive so you can load it up into your web browser and be able to, you know, move things around and you can also compress nodes and, and uh, expand them. And so what this means basically is if you have, you know, different subnets, different VPCs, and you're not interested in some of them, you're only interested in others, you can delete some of the different VPCs from view, or you can compress them down to a single node so you can still see all the different connections that come into it. And so so it's really like a professional looking, you know, tool. And so that allows you to map out and, and visualize your environments. Can you kind of leverage that for auditing too? Kind of like, hey, this is what we built and this tool kind of proves what can talk to one another to help get get an architect or a PM off your back? Yeah, so I, I actually heard from one person that I don't know where they have it being displayed, but I think they said, you know, basically on their ops floor or something like that, like a, just a view of their environment. So, you know, the whole team can see like what it actually looks like for them. And so, and, and really, you know, this is helpful, you know, not only for, you know, this team that is actually building these things, but it's also helpful just to give a picture to, you know, your your managers or, you know, your finance department when they're like, why are we spending all this money? And you're like, look at all this stuff that's in there, you know, so you can actually show them like a picture uh, what this looks like and be able to describe it better, you know, and, mm-hmm. and be able to see those lines and icons and, you know, the different levels, you know, of the subnets and things like that, that, that really helps someone understand it a lot better. And it's also really helpful, you know, if you bring on a new person to the team or maybe you bring in, you know, someone part time or something like that to really help them ramp up a lot better and give them, you know, that visual image of their head of what the environment looks like. Yeah, we all know the people controlling money love visuals, especially gas (laughs) gauges. Love gas gauges. (laughs) Anyways. Now, Scott, so we've talked about flaws.cloud. We just talked about Cloud Mapper. And now there's yet a third tool here to talk about Cloud Tracker. (laughs) Introduce that one to us. 
Yeah, so so Cloud Tracker was a was a follow up on um, Cloud Mapper, and so again um, worked with Duo Security on this tool. And what this tool does is it helps you be able to practice least privileges in your AWS environments. And so, you know, you read AWS's documentation, they say, hey, you should do least privilege. And they give you absolutely no instructions on how to accomplish that. It's just a thing that you should try and do. And so Cloud Tracker is a tool to actually help you accomplish that. So just, just to pause for a second here. So, so least privilege. I, I mean, I think intuitively we all know what that is, but just to clarify, what is the absolute minimum amount of privilege that some user or some process has to have to get its job done? Give it that and no more? Exactly. Yeah. So you can imagine maybe you have some type of service you've built to handle, you know, scaling of your EC2 instances in, in some special way. And what this is going to do is, you know, maybe every morning it's just going to start up a bunch of EC2 instances for you. So that doesn't need access to your S3 buckets. It doesn't need to be able to create new users in your account. It only needs to be able to spin up new EC2 instances and maybe, you know, kill them at the end of the night or something like that. And so so that's what you want to do for least privileges. Only give it those privileges that it actually needs to perform. And in order to be able to identify that, what Cloud Tracker does is it looks at the IAM policies for your different users and roles in your accounts and identifies what are the privileges that have been granted to them and then figures out based on CloudTrail logs, which is logs of different API calls that have happened in your account, it identifies what are the calls that have actually been made by that server. And so you can, you know, limit it over, you know, you know, past 30 days or past 90 days or whatever you want to do. Um, you can limit it in those ways. And so then you can see, okay, I've given this actor in my account these different privileges, but they've only used some of these privileges. And so therefore, it'll give you that diff view to be able to show here are the privileges that they have, but they don't actually use. And so therefore, you should remove those. Ha. Huh. That is a different way of going. That is, that is a different way of going about it. Well, would there be cases once in a while where... This service only needs that privilege once a month. And so you kind of get stung by that or? So, yeah, that that is a possibility. And, um, you know, you might want to have, for example, you might have your CTO of the company. He's he's busy all the time, never uses AWS anymore, anything like that. But you want to ensure that he still has access to AWS in some way, just in case the entire DevOps team, you know, quit the company or something like that, just so that he can maintain control of, you know, the company and its assets and resources, just in case, you know, some type of backup or disaster recovery plan. So you might have something like that, or you might have, you know, your security team, you know, might need to have access to all the different accounts, just so in case there's a security incident, they can go in and they can, you know, leak keys from a user that was compromised or roll their password or something like that. And if you never have any incidents, then maybe they never used those privileges before. So what Cloud Tracker is doing is it's only advising you on these things. It's not actually going to remove the privileges. It's only going to give you that diff. And then you have to, you know, identify, do I actually want these privileges or not to be removed from them and, and take action yourself. So it's it's almost like an audit. Um, well, yeah, it's exactly like an audit, actually. Here's what's been granted. Here's what's being used. Now you have a decision to make, what you're going to do with that information. Exactly. Yeah. And so so for myself coming in and you know, helping to assess companies, from AWS, I can find out whether or not a user actually logged in, in the past 90 days. You know, I, I, can, I can find that information out from AWS. But if I want to find out, did they only use you know, one command the entire time, you know, I had to be able to create a tool like Cloud Tracker to be able to figure that out. And where Cloud Tracker becomes especially useful is you know, nowadays the best practice for AWS is to have multiple accounts. You want to have you know, your prod account, your dev account, your stage 
page account and you know you want to have one account for one product and another uh, account for a different product line so so now you have you know dozens potentially hundreds of different AWS accounts and you want to a lot of times you're going to be using roles in those accounts in order to be able to access things. And so multiple users might have the same role and it becomes difficult to understand, you know, did this user actually use all the privileges of that role? Because it's it's somewhat easier to identify if a role used all the privileges, but if multiple people are using that same role, it's very hard to be able to identify which of those people within that role are using all the privileges. Um, and so Cloud Tracker is able to give you that very fine grained level of uh, information to identify this user when they use this role actually use the different privileges and that user and role can be in different accounts and so it allows you to follow them as they're in those different accounts so it's a pretty extensive tool that allows for a lot of functionality okay i gotta give you major props for open source and these tools because it just dawned on me what what's happened here you needed these tools to do your job uh, as, a, as a cloud security consultant and develop them so that you wouldn't miss a trick. Everything would be automated and uh, you could pull all that information and then you know, present that to your client. So in theory, that's a competitive advantage for you that you have graciously open source to make the world a better place. So there you go. Big, big data knots pat in the back, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I figured, you know, I, I my, my goal is not to, you know, do one trick and continuously do it for, you know, every company or anything like that. I want to basically, you know, figure out a problem, solve that problem, and hopefully figure out a way to solve it for everybody because I don't want to have to, you know, go in and help people, you know, every different company with that issue. I just want the problem solved so I can move on to new and cooler problems. And so, so that's kind of what I'm doing right now. And so actually currently um, I'm adding in a ton of new functionality to that cloud mapper tool that I discussed. Um, so currently what it does is it generates network diagrams, but now what it, what I'm allowing it to do have a client recently that has over 100 AWS accounts. And so being able to audit 100 AWS accounts in a quick way, especially when they have different business units and some of those business units, you know, created IM users for me, some of them created cross account trust roles, some of them created, uh, you know, SSO access for me. So it was, it was a mess to try and be able to get access to these different accounts. And so what CloudMapper does now is it actually downloads all the metadata associated with the account. And so it downloads, you know, not only the information about the network resources, but it also downloads loads of the IEM data and uh, information about S3 buckets and things like that. So it's only the metadata about the accounts. And, and then what I'm doing is I'm building tools that leverage that data. And so, so I already have basically the tools built. I just need to you know, copy it to my public repo. Example of what this does is it will look at all of your different AWS accounts and will look at the IAM roles and S3 bucket policies and some other things in order to identify what are the different trust relationships you have between your accounts. And so with this, it'll generate a diagram for you again that'll actually show you, you know, your prod account has a VPC peering to your staging account. And, you know, this other account over here has access to your S3 bucket in order to be able to collect logs or something like that from it. Um, and so it's able to show you all those different accounts that you have tied together. And so again, this was really useful for me coming into this company because they gave me a list of what accounts they had and they said, you know, and they gave me access to those accounts. And then using this tool, I was able to identify unknown accounts that had trust relationships with those accounts that they had. And so in some cases, you know, this would, this would be, you know, a lot of cases it was just a vendor or it was, you know, some other account that, you know, was useful to them. And for whatever reason, they just, you know, forgot to include in the inventory list that they provided me. And so, so this has been really useful for, for being able to identify those unknown policies and things like that. And then there's tons of other functionality that I'm adding to cloud mapper, but uh, I won't, it'll take too long to explain (laughs) all of them. (laughs) 
Uh, oh, Scott, this has been great. Thanks for a lot for coming on the show today, for sharing uh, your knowledge about AWS security, some of the things beyond S3 buckets that people maybe haven't been thinking too hard about, and then some of the tools that you've developed. How can people follow you, Scott? So I have a website, summitroute.com. And so there I'm putting up a blog post there, but Twitter is probably the best way. So Unfortunately, my Twitter handle is uh, diff- difficult to pronounce. It's going to be uh, Dabadoo written in hex with a uh, zero X at the beginning. Um, so it's, uh, it's it a little hard to, hard to say or, or be able to spell out. But, but yeah, if you, if you look for, uh, I guess, uh, Summit Route is my, a Twitter handle for my company. And so you'll be able to find it there as well. Well, that's great stuff. And uh, thanks for coming on the Data Nuts podcast today, Scott. And for if you want to find any of these tools that we talked about, uh, the original blog post on Duo.com uh, about Beyond S3 Exposed uh, resources on AWS that Scott wrote, all of those links are in the show notes at packetpushers.net. Uh, or if you just look in your podcatcher at the notes for the podcast, that's probably right there on your phone. All the links are there as well, along with Scott's Twitter handle, GitHub account, summitroute.com, and so on. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots Podcast. You can reach me, that's Ethan, at EC Banks is uh, Twitter, or check out the About page on EthanCBanks.com. And uh, you can digitally probe Chris. He's at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is WallNetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, get shot out of the cannon that is PacketPushers.net. You will join the Data Knots in orbit as we bust silos, conversing about containers and automation, cloud security, storage architecture, distributed applications, network design, and so much more. And until then, then, may your server lights blink, your clouds be closed and not exposed, and your cables be cleanly managed. No one thought it was funny. Okay, I thought it was funny. All right, well, we'll move, moving right along.